Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And welcome back to Menkind, where we chat to a range of brilliant guests about masculinity. Some of them are men, some of them aren't men, and some of them aren't particularly bothered either way. We're interested in men. Yes, obviously you are. And what makes them tick? Where does masculinity come from? How does it affect us? And how could we be better? We might not get a final answer, but we'll have a bloody good go at it. Won't we, Michael? Oh, we'll do our best. Welcome to the New Week, everybody. I'm Mark Watson, and where there is Mark Watson, there is very often also dot dot dot... Michael Chakraverty, I think, is the answer to that question. You nailed that. I think uh, there's a slightly worrying pause, but in you came. (laughs) (laughs) How has your week been, Mark? Uh, My week has consisted of quite a bit of touring. Michael will undoubtedly chat about that uh, in the outro. And by chat about it, I mean strategically plug the tour in quite an undignified way. Before we get to your self-flattery, though, let's talk about our guest. We have a wonderful guest this week called Rhys Nicholson, who is known for being funny generally everywhere, right? Uh, Yes, we uh, were fortunate to speak to Rhys, who is a very uh, highly regarded, very funny and talented comedian, uh, extremely well known in his homeland of Australia. This is a second consecutive Australian guest, another tough one for us in terms of watching someone else have a wine later in their day. But we just, we're professionals, aren't we? Yeah, and I tend to have a wine at most times during my day. It's just a verbal one. But anyway, Reese is also a judge on the new series of RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under, which he's smashing, honestly. He made a very funny joke about hairy chaps, and I still think about it from time to time now. So it's something for everyone. We'll speak to you on the outro. We hope you enjoy this week's episode with Reese. I've just got your joke, Michael. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Michael. I'm Mark Watson, and... When I say good morning, Michael Chakraverty, I literally mean it because this is the earliest episode recording we've ever done. Is that true, Michael? Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah, you're not even drinking, which is unusual. Yet. <laughs> and uh, the reason for this 9am start is we're joined by a guest, not just an Australian, but a guest that is in Australia, Reese Nicholson. Hello! Morning stroke evening, Reese. How are you? I'm very well. You know, for me, it's quarter past six, so I'm having a wine. Go fuck yourself. Well, I don't have a podcast with this energy. We'll keep that in. You know, we've had some quite gentle intros to the podcast. I like the idea of one with a bit of teeth, to be honest. Yeah, and to me be the one trying to come in with quite masculine energy, there's an irony to that that I do enjoy for this podcast as well. It's a good turnaround for regulars. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very jealous, it goes without saying, of your wine. But it's less to be jealous of, I suppose, in terms of recent circumstances, considering he's been in the same room for how many days? now this is six days just i'm in hotel quarantine i'm not under <laughs> arrest or something or... but incredibly this is not even your first or your second this is your third bout of quarantine my third quarantine and this is because you've been going back and forth yeah i won't be happy till i get it <laughs> <laughs> i just try and sit in big petri dishes in hotels yeah i've done some work in new zealand and then i got a job when i was in new zealand i had to go to canada had is a strong word, but went to Canada and now I'm coming back to Australia. So yeah. 
What was meant to be a two and a half week trip became seven months very quickly. Incredible stuff. Is it fair to say one of these jobs is drag related, Reese? Because yes. our listeners do tend to really like that. Yes. Yeah, I was a judge on RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. And then, yeah, I got this kind of acting job in Canada off the back of that, then had to go quite quickly. Perhaps we should ask who you are. Perhaps that would be helpful. Oh, yeah, that's a good who point. Who are you, Reese? Yeah, yeah. I am Reese Nicholson. And do I say what I do? We I'm often a- say, how do you describe yourself at this moment? Oh, yeah. How do I describe myself? Available. <laughs> work-wise. I don't know. Like, do you know what? I've become more comfortable with comedian in the last couple of years. And maybe it's because I'm working less. But I will write on airport forms comedian now, whereas I used to write, like, retail assistant. <laughs> like, I had a fake job. Yeah. Retailer of jokes. Yes. What pushes you over the precipice? What finally makes you feel like you can? I think, and this probably sounds a bit douchey answer, but, like, that at least in Australia, there's more chances of me perhaps being recognised. And right. so if I didn't say that, it went from being like, if you wrote comedian, people were like, who's this dick? <laughs> and now if I wrote something else, it'd be like, who's this dick? Like, <laughs> pretending he's not the person. I feel like if you have a Netflix special, you shouldn't say you work at McDonald's. Yeah. Generally. Well, although... I used to have a story I told on stage about claiming to be a zookeeper and having to keep that going just because I panicked and didn't want to say comedian. These days, it'd be much worse if I was outed as a comedian when I was halfway through pretending that I was an animal expert. <laughs> I do these lies when I have a haircut. Mm-hmm. They're saying, oh, what do you do? And I don't like to say the truth. And so I end up caught in this really like 45 minute long lie about being a pots and pans salesman or like a professional runner, a professional athlete or whatever it is. Wow, like it's really those are big swings, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. I'm going to try and attempt the worst segue of all time. Are you ready? You can't have a worse segue than the actual guy that invented the segue who flew off a cliff on a segue. Oh, did he? So that is maybe the worst segue. I had no idea. Yeah, you're not going to bring the podcast to its knees in the same way as he went to his, Michael. You'll be fine. (laughs) Anyway. Now, Michael, let's try a non-fatal segue into the question. I'm just going to jump in with it. Reese Nicholson, what was your first brush with masculinity that you can remember? Quite a deep question to start with. Oh, no, it's fine. Look, I've already talked about the death of Segway Man. <laughs> Imagine if I was like two weeks ago. No, um, I think it was, <laughs> I remember, I think in like primary school, me and some other kids were like comparing our dads. I feel like that was a big thing in primary school to be like, my dad can do this. The dad Olympics. Yeah. We've all got it. I'd recently at the time seen my dad move a washing machine. <laughs> And that was like, well, my dad can lift a washing machine, which to a bunch of other, you know, probably seven-year-olds was the biggest thing they'd ever seen in their lives. Yeah, that's checkmate, basically, isn't it? Yeah, it was like, so the rest of your dads may as well be our mums. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you've seen your dad lift a car, the washing machine's unbeatable. Yeah. Washing machines have concrete in them as well. Like, it is a pretty hefty thing to be lifting. It's a major achievement from Mr Nicholson, yeah. He did very well. And so I think that's kind of it, like... It was the first time I'd really thought about, like, we were comparing our dads and our mums, which is also a confusing thing to think about now because, like, my mum was the breadwinner in our family and, like, my dad was a stay-at-home dad. So it was just kind of quite confusing. Mm. <laughs> like, well, my dad's so strong, he cooks us dinner every night. So it was like this kind of great <laughs> juxtaposition between the two things. But I think that's it. But was it that physical strength, do you think, that was the kind of signifier of masculinity that you are trying to prove? I think that's it because I, I think... We're around the same age. How old are you, Michael? 28. Yeah, I'm 30. Right. How old are you, Mark? Just quickly. Carry on with the podcast, please. How old are you, Mark? I said carry on with the podcast. <laughs> I reckon he's like 40. I'm 41, so I'm considerably older than both of you, but I'm uh, cheering myself up by imagining an Olympic event, which is just people's dads come out and lift whatever they can. Yeah, the dad's Olympics. <laughs> but it has to be a household object. It has to be the thing you can find in your house. <laughs> 
I think it'll be very popular with the gays as well. You can really picture it, can't you? Oh, yeah. No, that's the Daddy Olympics. <laughs> you know that probably exists. It will. It will. <laughs> People are Googling as they listen to this. But I do think, like, we're maybe the last generation that, especially at that age, like, of course I had a bunch of friends that probably had queer parents, but we just didn't really talk about it. Mm, yeah. Whereas I feel like it's a very much more open thing now to have queer parents, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's also more common now, I guess, to have stay-at-home dads. Yeah. I'm older than you, obviously, but I don't remember hardly anyone being in that situation at my school. How did you feel about it? Did it strike you as an unusual thing in the context of your own mates, or did you not care particularly? Not really, because he also, like, he worked from home. Like, so my parents are both, my mum is a school teacher and she's a principal now, but when we were little, little, they were both like artists they're both ceramicists oh yeah they're potters wow. they're like the communists of the art world <laughs> arty even for artists yeah even artists are like really ceramicists get out wet dirt that's what we're going with yeah. okay sure so he worked from home but yeah he was the one that took us to school he was the one that made our lunches the one that now thinking about it it must have been odd for him maybe as well because he's a manly he's a pretty masculine guy for a guy that makes ceramics <laughs> for a guy that mostly works with wet dirt yeah Yes. <laughs> He'd be so sure that that's not what he does. Imagine if I found out now that he's like, no, dad's a plumber. <laughs> but he's a pretty masculine guy, like, because you kind of have to be to be a ceramicist. When you say a masculine guy, what do you mean? Well, that's a good point. Strong, I guess. Right. But isn't that interesting that I kind of still think of that as masculine? Yeah, it's exactly the sort of suppositions that we like to dig into in this podcast. Yeah. Michael's very pleased with himself and he should be. Yeah, I always am, generally. <laughs> yeah, like he's always had big muscles and mm. like, he's always like drunk big beers and like... But, you know, I've also seen him delicately putting teapot spouts onto tiny little teapots to sell at market. So there is this kind of deep juxtaposition of my father. You know, he's the child of Scottish-American immigrants. So there's a lot of, you know, that kind of children of adults of the Great Depression kind of thing where they work very hard yeah. and then the next generation down don't. I'm a comedian. Just dick about being comedians, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you were saying that your dads were competing in this kind of dad Olympics and masculinity seemed like strength to you when you were that age. Did you then identify with that when you were younger? Because I'm assuming you were kind of put in the boy mould and said, here you are then, that's you. Yeah, I mean, not really. Like, I think I'm really lucky... Any kind of, like, mould I was put into was 100% myself. Right. <laughs> I think I'm one of those cliche examples of everyone was pretty clear how things were going to work out for me from a pretty early age. And so there was just blind support, whereas other people less lucky as me would have been like, well, let's try and stamp that fire out. <laughs> there was a bit more kind of like, let's ease him into this. I remember pretty vividly when I was, like, 10 or 11, my mum essentially not explaining to me what being gay was, but just kind of... Just being like, you know, if you were that, that would 100% be fine. Oh, that's lovely. By the way, like just kind of planting seeds early on. I was thinking about this is just the other day. Oddly, the older I get, I think I connect like masculinity these days, and I guess kind of toxic masculinity, to things being difficult. Like, I don't know, this is a weird example of it. I sit down to pee. I've started sitting down to pee because it's just easy. You started a conscious decision. Not, not as in like, well, from here on out, but. <laughs> yeah. You've not made the statement to the press, for example. You know what? My PR, she would not release it. She said it would be damaging. <laughs> well, I started doing it because I realised, first of all, I use cubicles to pee anyway. I'm not a urinal guy. Yeah. I mean, and it's even easier these days because since I don't go to nightclubs or anything, it was harder back in the day when I would go to nightclubs and you open a cubicle door and you're like, oh, wow, that's that's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Which I 
side note, could have never understood how that would happen in a nightclub. Anyways, like, you know when you see, like, a proper mess and you're like, has this happened? I like to think it's gradual. I think it's like a collective art project that one person just does yeah. one more thing to it. Like, I'm going to throw this on the floor. I'm going to stamp inside the cistern, like, all that kind of stuff. Do you think? And I guess we've all tried ecstasy once and gone, ooh, I need to go to the bathroom right now. A small sub-feature here for regular listeners. How do nightclub toilets get so bad? Well, boys' bathrooms are always grosser. (laughs) They are. I think there's something about masculine men... You know, there's the cliches of complaining about this is the most I ever hurt myself or something. And I realised, like, standing up to pee is just harder. It's just a harder... Like, what are you losing by sitting down? (laughs) You can look at your phone. Right. I drink a lot, so I'm not going to make a mess. It's easier to aim. (laughs) It's just easier. (laughs) And I feel like I've taken us down a strange path early on. No, it's true. Though. Oddly, it's not that strange because not very long ago we had an episode where I was interviewed by Michael and one of my defining early memories of masculinity was a boy weeing on me at a urinal because he just hadn't mastered the technique yet. Was this like three years ago? <laughs> no, it's slightly less recently than that. <laughs> yeah, okay. So uh, the subject of urinals versus cubicles has come up more often than you might yeah. think. There was also a thing at the urinals where people would either have their trousers around their ankles or their trousers by their hips. Yep. And that was a power play as well. Like who felt brave enough to pull their trousers all the way down? Which is weird. Whereas when you're seated, you don't need to worry. No. And it's just, take a load off, champ. (laughs) (laughs) They should have that on signs in public toilets to remind you that cubicles are an option. Take a load off. So your original point, Reese, was that this is one example of how masculine men sort of almost seek opportunities to make things harder unnecessarily. Yeah. And you feel like that's a pattern of toxic masculinity. Yeah, like I think it's like a long bow, but like it's a movie trope of like men in bars showing scars Mm. where they've hurt each other and stuff. Like there's this argument where they just... I've lived a rougher life sure. than you. I've stood up for every we I've ever had. Yeah, and it was tough. <laughs> I'm exhausted. I was on a cliff and I had to piss off a cliff once <laughs> and it was raining and there were tigers. Yeah. And there was a cubicle there. Would I use it? Like hell I would. <laughs> no, I'm not a lady. Whereas I think the kind of movie trope of kind of effeminate men, which I've always related to them, mm. you know, I would almost describe myself as a Nancy, which is they're always kind of, on fainting couches, never worked a day in their lives. And I'm not helping. I'm a comedian. My hands are very soft. (laughs) I've always thought, surely the aim in life is to work less. Surely. It's interesting, this, Reese, because... Well, firstly, by the way, you say it's kind of a cliche that you were always going to be that boy. But actually, on our podcast, it's sort of not a cliche. I think Mike would agree. We've had far more stories of people having to resist to the conclusion because people weren't as supportive of it. Yeah. Or haven't, we haven't actually spoken to that many people who were securely on this path of being gay, nice and early in life. Well, it's quite rare in our industry. Y- yeah. <laughs> he says clutching a wine at 6pm. <laughs> oh no, i still got my problems. <laughs> but you've been robbed of two to three stories about how tough, probably more than that, you could have had a whole show out of it if you hadn't yeah. had such an easy coming out process. <laughs> well, this is the thing, I never had a coming out show. Exactly. Your artistic development has been uh, ruined by your parents supportiveness like mine really i've always been tempted to have one recently like to just do a coming out show at like 35 (laughs) surprise surprise (laughs) (laughs) you guessed it i think this is really interesting what you say about work and the object of life i'm a workaholic and i sort of 
drive myself extremely hard. I'm in my 40s now, as we know. I've read quite a lot of stuff recently about how you ought to balance work and life Mm. if you can't even separate these things. And I've thought about recently, what is the purpose of life? Not recently, Mark. It's been an ongoing issue. Yeah, I'm tormented by it. Yeah. And I would preface very quickly as well, I'm also a workaholic. Like, I also work a lot. You work very hard, for sure. But I guess when I mean, this is the other thing, what do I mean by masculinity? What do I mean by work? I mean, like that physical work, I guess, mm. you know, yeah. Yeah, you'd say that one way in which you differ from the traditional masculine tropes is that you're not out there looking for opportunities to physically exhaust yourself, because yeah. why would you? Why? And you'd rather preserve that energy to do stuff with, because again, you obviously work incredibly hard. You're not just trying to have an easy life, but the way in which we measure working hard and labouring is maybe different for our generation of men than it ever has been before. I think so. Like, you know, since robots. No. <laughs> but I think it was very like for my dad's generation. If my grandfather did what my dad did, my dad probably would have been embarrassed. Does that make sense? If he'd been like a stay-at-home dad. Sure. And I'm not like, this is a broad generalisation and this might my dad might be like, don't say that. But <laughs> if in that generation, a stay-at-home dad would have been bonkers yeah and then there's like a trickle down a little bit where even probably by the time my dad was doing that it would have been a little bit strange if i had the knowledge to understand that whereas i feel like now it's pretty common yeah and in another generation's time well the hope is people won't even differentiate between one parent and another that much in terms of what their supposed roles are not at all whatever the situation is yeah which has got to be progress that also feeds so into you know i would hope that i'm the last generation of people that ask queer people about like who's the man and who's the woman and that type of thing Mm. and i'm sure this has come up on this podcast before but like yeah, it, I can't believe it happens though. I mean, I can't believe someone would ask that as a straight guy. <laughs> I still get asked all the time. Like, but the new guys of it within the gay community is, are you a top or are you a bottom? Which is the same question that they're asking. It's the same question. Yeah. I think I saw like um, Little Nas X or someone was talking about that recently, the inherent misogyny of that. Yeah. Because you are connecting not to like feed into this, but I am a top most of the time. Right. And how that completely cancels out. <laughs> that argument because in every other aspect yeah so mark's looking confused (laughs) (laughs) so generally a top is the person who is giving and the bottom is the person who is receiving and the concept is the top's the spoon the (laughs) the top's the spoon what does that make the bottom i don't know a cup i don't know what are you keeping in a spoon (laughs) (laughs) saucer I'm actually not confused, Michael, because I know all about this because of you and this podcast. Oh, yes. Yeah. Sorry, I forget. But it's really fascinating then because people can then not attach being feminine to being, say, I say feminine with inverted commas around it, with being a top because it just doesn't make sense to this kind of idea of strength or power, you know? Like, I get quite strange messages on my social media. <laughs> a lot of gay people begin sentences like this on the podcast, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And I'd say you're probably the same, Michael, yeah. that um, when you're in the media and you are a queer man, you just get messages from, I would say, this is broad generalisation, kind of older queer men, just like, just listing some of the things that they would like to do with you. Yeah. <laughs> listing them. Just listing them. Making like a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The long videos. Some of them are quite skilled. <laughs> <laughs> and they're always in the guise as if I am a, a bottom. And not that that's a problem, but it is just an interesting assumption. Like, that's the new assumption, I think. Because they think that you present in a sort of vaguely feminine way. Yeah, or, okay. a feminine way. It's just like an interesting, I have no end to this topic. I've got a kind of supplementary question, which is, broadly speaking, I mean, you might not be in a position to, either of you, to measure this. But- and put it away, please. I don't, <laughs> please get that off the Sorry. Not, not even the first time we've measured it on the podcast. Um, Quickly, as a side note, the only way he could measure it in inches was thinking of it in sizes of different vinyls. 
we had a guest who brought penis size into the three ideal qualities of a man and then turned it on me and said, all right, what about you? If you wanted a man to have a penis, how big would it be? And yeah, I'm old enough that I could only think in terms of uh, seven and 12 inch records. And uh, I felt that 12 inch would be inconvenient for both parties. Yeah, I was going to say, if you can only think it's seven and 12, that is terrible news. Oh, don't worry. I, I can scale up and down if necessary. <laughs> well, I was just going to ask on a note of cis curiosity, is there more of a culture in gay life of this weird thing of unsolicited offers do you think as gay people in the media you get more of this kind of thing and if so why because i hear gay people with a profile all the time talking about their dms just being basically a swamp of this kind of thing i'm sure it happens to women as well but not in the same way i think it's generationally changing Mm. but i think because of the circumstances that the old generations of queer men and women had to have sex and you did have to be a little bit more Covert about things. Covert, but also overt. Yeah. So you had to be kind of like pretty clear. Right. We don't have long. This is what I want. This is what I need. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, that makes complete sense. You had to get down to it because you didn't have the luxury of, I guess, public displays of flirtation and stuff in the same way. And this is not to complain about it. It's also nice sometimes. I know, but sometimes it'll just be like, I'd say you probably get this as well, Michael. Just comments about, I don't know, just our looks. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll post about a show (laughs) that's coming up. And it's like, oh, sweetie, the thing, we could fill an afternoon, like just weird things like that. And you're like, oh. Yeah, but back to my show, ticket's still available. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like it is, and I would never compare it, I'm sure, to just what it is to be a woman in the media. Like I'm sure it's, but it's. It's mm. a hypersexualization. And I think, again, I'm not one to know exactly where this comes from, but I think there is an element of, there was for so long, it was something to be ashamed of. So there's a kind of pride in being like, I'm not ashamed of this. And this is how we have sex. I mean, there's been that whole, kink at pride discourse recently and kind of being able to say this is who i am this is what i like and yes i am gonna rub it in your face actually because you rub it in mine all the time yeah absolutely is that a literal kink or just a metaphor pass i wouldn't know to be honest i find it very confusing (laughs) (laughs) i just don't quite know how do i refer to you if you are dressed as a dog what pronouns would you like (laughs) 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 i don't i don't know that is a tough thing as well because i am in a 10-year monogamous relationship i'm pretty conservative isn't the right words but like i'm not a necessarily kinky person and i have been in situations before where like whether it be pride or something that i have been a little bit like oh, like clutching my pearls a little bit not in a way that i would ever like publicly say like ah oh, this is full on yeah but i think it's just a personality trait of mine that i've got a dirty mouth and i'm very filthy in my comedy but actually in my real life i'm quite like conservative in my i'm similar yeah you guys are all taught <laughs> well truly like in my relationship standards and like the idea of a threesome absolutely terrifies me the idea of open relationships i know that they completely work for people but for me i'm a very jealous person i'm a very quite close-minded and i wish i wasn't but i'm 30 it's too late <laughs> too late for you too late. but it's unusual and lots of gay people feel free from the bounds of monogamy and traditional relationships, I think. Lots of gay men in particular look down on those in monogamous relationships because yeah. they are subscribing to this sort of heteronormative world. Do you find that? Yeah. A little bit sometimes. Like, And I'm sure it feels the same way that it must feel for someone to be like, um, open relationships don't work. Like, because they do. I've seen them yeah. work and they work just as well as monogamous relationships because monogamous relationships break down as well. <laughs> like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, to say that, well, you guys broke up and it was messy in your open relationship, so they don't work. It's like, 
Are your parents still together? <laughs> yeah, you might as well say, well, one of them died in the end, so that relationship failed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything has an end, right? Exactly. What is it really other than like, like a really long competition? That's what marriage is really, isn't it? Who will make yeah. it? Who's going to get there? It's basically a Hunger Games style elimination. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting thing being part of the queer community. And I've really tried in the last few years to be more... Sounds hokey, but like to be more in touch with my queerness, if that makes any sense. Like, I used to feel like my comedy, for example, was very for straight audiences, and it still is, but like it's finding a middle ground between, you know, how can I be useful to my community while also being profitable? (laughs) But (laughs) haven't you guys got money as well, though? Of the pink dollar, it's very lucrative. Yeah, I've heard about that. The exchange rate isn't always great. About three or four years ago, I started writing differently because I just realised people were kind of coming to see me like it was the zoo. It's like, how do they live? <laughs> and it, I think it comes back into the conversation of masculinity because I was doing jokes for quite heteronormative straight couples. That is interesting. Like, these are jokes that are accessible for you. I'm not going to talk about the intricacies of being queer. I'm going to talk about just anal. <laughs> just, there's the title for this episode. Race Nicholson, just, just anal. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it, Reese, but it, it's true. I mean, Cooper and I went to see you. Well, it must be the last time we were in Melbourne, which is the last time we were permitted to enter Melbourne, which can only be 2019. And the difference between seeing you do a full length show then and when I first saw you was considerable, actually, just in terms of your range. And I'd say that audience was not primarily straight or gay. It was, well, at least you couldn't tell from being in no. the audience. But I do remember thinking you were pushing yourself much more in terms of range of subject because it was the sort of show that as a comedian, you come away from yourself thinking, I could be more adventurous, actually. Oh, that's nice. Thank you very much for saying. It was really great. And we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, guys. (laughs) I started liking the noise of being able to throw a piece of material out, like or even just a reference, and a third of the audience laughing at it, but laughing at it quite heartily Mm, and being like, that's how many queer people are here, because that's a very niche 
bedroom reference that I've made. Yeah, I'm in the two thirds that are sitting there sneakily googling. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that kind of comes down to gender as well. Like I started talking about gender stuff, and I think it was only because I'd really started to think about it a little bit more as well. You know, when I meet younger queer people now, especially I co-own a comedy club in Melbourne, and so we have a lot of younger acts come through which is even strange for me to think about. Like, I still feel like I'm like 20. <laughs> uh, just you wait, Reese. Yeah, <laughs> But you must have the same thing. I do. Younger acts, I'm afraid to tell you, just keep on coming. And some of them are, are good. That's even worse. Yeah. It's a nightmare. It's a weird thing. You either become threatened by it and bitter, or you just are as supportive as you can be of it, basically. Or you block them from performing at your club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you deny that they exist and starve them of opportunity. <laughs> Whatever works, really. But, and I hope this doesn't come out the wrong way, but... This is the first time, generally, we have a slew of gender-diverse comedians coming through that aren't bringing it up as they're walking on. In the same way that I used to, when I started comedy 12 years ago, would walk on stage and have to make a little joke at the start. Yeah. About, like, just so you know, I know that I'm gay. <laughs> just so you know. I think that's really changing. I, I agree over here as well. There is less of an expectation that you must address the elephant in the room in the first 30 seconds. Yeah. Comedy audiences are becoming more broad-minded as well as the culture of comedy. Because the joke is always at your own expense. Yeah. And whether you're a queer comedian of any, like, you know, trans, like, it's a joke to make you feel comfortable. Yeah. Mm. And... I feel like that's dying now. What tip tips do you think? Or is it just slowly going? I think it's just slowly going. Mm. There's not necessarily a moment or like a zeitgeisty thing. I think it's just purely representation. Like the fact that this podcast exists. Yeah. So actually we've done it, Michael, is what he's saying. Very gently. That's what I heard. Yeah, yeah, it's you guys. You are the moment. <laughs> Where do you sit with your gender? You've mentioned manly and masculinity and you've kind of talked about it separately from you a little bit. Where do you sit with it? I think... I was talking to my fiancé about this the other day, about how a lot of people on their social medias and stuff these days have their pronouns. Mm. And a pretty common one these days is like he, him, or, you know, or she, her, but then they, them afterwards. And I feel like I sit in there where it's kind of like I don't feel like a man or a woman, but I also don't feel so strongly about it. That you'd be offended by a specific pronoun use or... Yes. Yeah, so, and I feel like I would almost be like putting on a bit of a role if I w was making people say they, them. But which I believe pretty strongly is the kind of future. Like as in maybe like 200 years, there's going to be people that feel very strongly this way or this way, but for the majority of people, they're going to be kind of like, I don't know. Do you see more people with like he, they, or like she, they in their pronouns because they're kind yeah. of, they're sitting in the, what you call the afterwards. They're sitting in the sort of the middle bit where they're kind of like, I'm kind of more over here, but it doesn't really matter so much, you know? We've come to that conclusion before. We've at least played with that conclusion on the podcast before. And maybe it's not 200 years. The, the speed of change at the moment, maybe it's a couple of generations. Yeah. And, you know, I see people like uh, someone in my family who's come out as non-binary and I was on a Zoom call with my dad and like a few other people and it kind of came up in conversation and my dad clearly, you know, like when things just don't get to parts of the family mm. <laughs> and my dad was kind of, he was corrected about it, about the name change. And I watched my dad's face on the Zoom, like the conversation kept going and I was watching him think about it and then I watched him like accept it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how quickly we're moving mm -hmm. is that my 62-year-old dad 
like they them is a very new situation. It's a very new concept. Yeah, and it's a mental leap that anyone has to make just because we're used to they on a punctuation level. Literally, on a grammatical thing. Yeah. Like when I first heard about it, it was still several months before I could make myself do it, but not ideologically. No. Just I had to keep stopping. And then after a bit you think, "Ah oh, yeah, this is fine." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a, a lot of things seem to be like that. They seem odd the first time they're introduced and then surprisingly quickly they become part of mainstream as you say those processes are happening really fast now yeah long story short like my own stuff is like i'm not sure it's not a thing that i've struggled with necessarily but it is a thing that i like and i feel like everyone should do this i've done stand-up about it before but everyone should just do like an occasional check (laughs) my joke used to be like i identify as a fun aunt because it is kind (laughs) of my the idea of what a man is does not work for me at all. Right. But that's the idea of it. I'm much more comfortable with makeup on. I'm much more comfortable with nail polish on. But I'm also much more comfortable in a suit. So am I a drag queen? You're told a Swinton is who you are. Yeah, I mean, essentially, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Timothy Chalamet, return my text. <laughs> <laughs> well, he just will have had a lot because of that meme. But yeah. I'm sure when it settles yeah. down, he'll have a day when he catches up like you sometimes have to. <laughs> I think it's really interesting learning that you like wearing nail polish or learning that you like wearing makeup, but you also like wearing suits and kind of combining bits of both that you like is, I think, something we've heard about before. But when does that start? Like, when do you start feeling like that you can wear makeup and stuff? I know you had a supportive family, but I'm assuming the world around you hasn't always been like, oh, that's great. We love your nails. Or maybe it has, in which case, great. (laughs) No, I mean, there are definitely jumps. I was very lucky I went to a performing arts school, so I was able to be like a high school. That explains so much, Reese. Look at you now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but also within like a kind of small biggity town. So it was this weird bubble where I could go to school with nail polish on and I wasn't wearing makeup in high school yet, but like probably should have been. (laughs) And I remember there was a boy at my school who was queer and he used to wear makeup and quite a lot. And I was, I wasn't besotted by him, but I was like, there was something deeply interesting about it. And I remember thinking how brave he was. Right. I started doing comedy quite young. So I started wearing makeup on stage purely because I had bad skin. But then it crept into, I started wearing quite like heavy kind of contoured makeup. This sounds not a great reason, but I started making my hair really big and wearing nail polish because I wanted to stand out amongst a big lineup of comedians. Yeah, that's that's just tactics. That makes complete sense. Yeah, like it was just branding. But then the more comfortable I became, I think it happens a lot with queer people, but it happens with everyone, but queer people, you do something... I feel like this is a broad generalisation, but I think people that end up being trans start in drag. Not everyone, but you do this thing because you're like, well, I'm going to do this performatively. Mm-hmm. And then you start to feel like, well, actually, I feel so much more comfortable like this. So you start doing it in the rest of your life. Yeah. To a much, much lesser degree, I started doing that with yeah, makeup and all that kind of stuff. It just made me feel more, I don't know. It's like a weird thing doing external things to feel more like yourself is a really bizarre concept to make people grasp. Yeah, to try and cement your internal identity. That's really interesting. Yeah, to do things to yourself to make yourself feel more like yourself (laughs) is a confusing thing. Like, I don't know, I've always felt like as a queer person, I have a concept of coming out, but I do not have a concept of gender dysphoria. Like, what does that feel like? Do you know what I mean? Like, what does it feel like inside your chest to know that this isn't right? That's not something you recognise as your experience? Not really. I recognise I've had, you know, body dysmorphia, but that's different. Mm. 
but I recognize kind of like doing external things to feel more confident, maybe. Maybe that's more rich, like to feel more... It's gender expression, isn't it? It's expressing who you are. Yeah. And like, I think everyone does that, whether they are the most butch manly man or butch womanly woman, whatever they are, but the way they express themselves through their clothing or through their hair or their makeup or their nails, that is something that shows the world who you are inside. It's a signifier of who you are, I guess. Hey, we're all born naked. (laughs) I haven't thought about that, but you're right. That's horrible. That was a reference from RuPaul. (laughs) Oh, of course it was. Yeah. Born naked and the rest is drag. Yeah. Oh, I have heard that. Yeah. Yeah, there you are. You're right, though. We've often talked on this podcast about how wherever you are on that spectrum of masculinity, performance is basically everything, isn't it? Almost all of us are performing in some way, either to convince ourselves or something. Mm. Like we said about branding, like loads of life is branding, essentially, whether you like it or not. Yeah. You're trying to realise your own identity or you're trying to convey something to someone else. When you go on a date, you're branding yourself. Yeah. Like as in when you're putting together the best way that you want to look. A package of who you are. That is personal branding. Absolute hellscape. Ugh. Oh, it's mad. But even yeah. internally, we're always branding. We're always trying to think, who am I? How do I like to see myself? And then like Reese says, you adopt behaviours which help to see yourself in that way. I think mm. I think that's just what being a human is to some extent. Yeah. Uh, we always ask about role models, Reese. Mm. You can either look at it from now or like when you were younger. Who did you look up to? Men or women? Yeah, we've heard a bit about your dad. Were there other men that... Yeah, I mean, other men, I think I was one of those people and I think it's pretty common in our profession to have been like exposed to whether it be like comedy or like parts of culture that you're probably too young to be exposed to. But like John Waters, like I saw that pretty early on. Yeah. And was like, that, whatever that is. <laughs> I remember I saw... It's brilliant, isn't Yeah, it? like, I didn't see Pink Flamingos or anything, but I, I remember my dad, because my dad is one of those guys, he loves, I think it's a pretty common, broadly dad thing to, like, put on something and then, like, just watch their kid's reaction to it. Yeah. And just be like, hey, how's this going to go? <laughs> and whereas like, my mum had also shown me, like, the Rocky Horror and stuff, like, pretty some pretty top-shelf, cliche, queer kid stuff. Yeah, Rocky Horror is just kind of route one. <laughs> to queer kids right yeah and i remember she fast forwarded through like the kind of bedroom bits in the rocky horror but it was vhs so i just saw it but faster (laughs) i still knew yeah i could still understand something was going on vhs didn't allow for secrets really did it no you couldn't skip chapter no (laughs) you just had the idea that sex scenes were always really really speeded up for some reason yeah and that's probably a common complaint for my partner now. <laughs> but John Waters movies, because there was also like a taste there, like a tastelessness, but there's like a, an aesthetic. I think that's what I've always looked for in like male figures in my life. It's not masculinity. It's like, like my uncle is another person in my life. He was in a band in Australia who became quite famous for a while. And they were a band called Machine Gun Fellatio. And they had these quite big kind of party hits in Australia. When was the last word explained to you? How old were you when you learned what that word meant? Oh, so they were known in our house as MGF. Right. <laughs> and then, yeah, my sister explained it to me. And I remember, I must have known what sex was. You know, like you learn about sex, but you don't know about like the pleasure included in sex or anything like that. So you just know it kind of has this job to make a baby. Yeah, you just get given the sort of textbook on it initially. Yeah, and I remember my sister kind of saying to me very quickly and probably uncomfortably, because she's seven years older than me, I must have just been like, what is it? Everyone keeps telling me to not ask what it is. (laughs) And she said, well, it's like, and she explained fellatio to me, and I was like, what? (laughs) Like, it just was so, like... Jesus Christ. How does that make a baby, though? Because <laughs> all I knew of it, like, I think even before then, you don't even really connect 
your dick to sex yet, really. No. You kind of connect it to peeing, <laughs> sitting down. <laughs> and even when you know what fellatio is, machine gun is not always a phrase you'd think of in the same sentence, no. maybe. Rapid? Is it rapid? Oh, is that look. the reason? I've never understood it, and my <laughs> uncle will not give me an answer. <laughs> in my head, it's the rapid fireness of it, yeah. like a really quick fellatio. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> look at you just making all these... For someone who was worried about a segue earlier, you're really making a lot of connections. All... Uh, when it comes to sex, Michael's brain works very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, your uncle. <laughs> my, my uncle was someone in my, and remains to be someone in my life who, I feel like everyone needs this. Someone who, if you're lucky enough to have parents in your life or like whoever your carers are, someone who is in your family who you can bitch about your parents to and they have context for them, but they also know that they're occasionally insane. Yeah, <laughs> like an ombudsman, basically, a sort of independent assessor. Essentially. <laughs> and I'm now thinking about that's exactly what he was. A family ombudsman. It's brilliant, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what he was. For any complaints, please tweet this address. <laughs> and because I think you go through a period of your life where you don't trust a single word your parents say. Mm-hmm. You just are angry at them for no reason. You think, I'm taking this straight to the uncle. Yeah, and <laughs> I would go to his house on the weekends. He was renovating his house for like a couple of And I would like, it's, it sounds like something out of an 1800s novel, but like I'd paint his fence or something and would like talk about, kind of have conversations like this really because even though he was my parents' age, I didn't really connect him to my parents. And so like... I love the idea of you painting the fence. We've talked a bit previously, I think with Rufus Hound actually, about how men tend to open up with each other when they're not looking at each other. Yeah, when they're doing tasks. Yeah. So like standing, looking away, doing something. Urinals. Urinals. <laughs> Maybe that's why you want the cubicle. You just don't want to share. You want to keep it all in. No. It's why the rest of us stand up to do it. It's the only way we can meet other people. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, sorry, your uncle painting fences. And so he was like a big person because also he was the only one in my family who left the town that I grew up in and he'd lived in Sydney and like was in a band and kind of, I think he could see in me, you don't want to be a teacher, you don't want to be like... You're going to go and do stuff. you got show business in you. Yeah, and he was able to give me kind of early management (laughs) and just kind of guys like that. I've never related to, I keep about to use the word masculine, but blokey men yeah has just never i've automatically been not threatened but just made uncomfortable and i think it's just by the way i grew up the town that i grew up in and even now i've noticed this thing when i used to do regional tours like you've done it a lot of times mark like the melbourne comedy festival road show they yeah. do this thing where you get to go to wonderful parts of australia but you also get to go to some pretty deep dark places of australia like weird backwater kind of towns. Yeah, places where the audience are quite different from Melbourne or Sydney. Yeah, and I would say that I'm an act, and maybe at certain times you might have been an act, where they would describe as an educational act, where they take them to (laughs) parts of the country that wouldn't usually tune into our type of comedy. As a social experiment, basically. Yeah, just to see, like, well, let's see what happens. And there would always be these types of men, I would maybe be in, like, the smoking area of the bar afterwards or something, because I used to smoke. This happened every time. A guy usually about, like, 21 or 22 would come up to me. And I used to wear, like, suits and I had really big, almost, like, cockatoo-like hair. And this guy would come up to, and I would always think, oh, he's about to, like, call me a faggot or something or something weird is about to happen. And without fail, every time they would always say, like, so you live in Sydney and start just asking me questions about Sydney and, like, what's it like there? And over the course of the conversation, I'd think to myself, like, oh, you're gay and, like, you're trapped in this... This is their way of getting into it. Yeah, and I'm the gayest thing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. Mm. And you're trying to squeeze out some information from... Because, like... You represent that possible life that they can't access. Yeah, 
because even though, you know, I was probably like 25 and not a great comedian yet, but I seemed this distant life that was possible for mm. them. And I don't know, it's just kind of, that's what I think when I think of masculinity is like mm. you're trapped. You're trapped mm. in this small town, what I see it as. I think it used to be that. Yes. But I think now it's beginning to open to include things like nail polish and makeup. Like I think the way that you present can be masculinity as well. Absolutely. I mean, through this podcast, I've learned so much, especially from non-binary people like Jamie Windust and Travis Alabanza and some brilliant guests we've had on. They talk so clearly about how they are masculine sometimes and then they're also feminine sometimes and they're able to kind of yeah. combine both. And I think there's so much we can learn from non-binary people in the way that they can present and combine. This is it. I kind of feel really lost in it sometimes. Mm. I feel like I just kind of did it then. I feel like I have really straight strong views about things and then I start to say it out loud and I think it's a problem of not my age but where this weird middle generation of queerness Mm -hmm. where there was the generation before us or a little bit before us that went through say the AIDS crisis yeah there was a real held onto belief of what pride meant and what being queer meant And then there was this kind of weird aftermath, which I think I'm a kind of child of that. And now we're going through the second kind of revolution of people really getting a hold of who they are and what queerness means to them. And there's this kind of weird middle bit (laughs) where we're like, "Um, well, I don't quite know what the AIDS crisis was, but I was called a faggot at high school. So (laughs) what do I do? Where do I grasp? I feel so much dumber about this stuff than people 10 years younger than me. Straight away. Five years younger than me, yeah. straight away. Yeah, because they're establishing a culture and a set of rules, or at least it seems like a very mobile community now. Yeah. We often like to look towards the end, or I like to look to the future a bit. We've really talked about how stuff like pronouns and these assumptions will be maybe melted away. But just talking about those communities, like Australia, obviously, away from these really, really diverse urban metropolitan centres like Melbourne, Sydney, Australia has these huge pockets of pretty dyed-in-the-wool, old-fashioned... And, of course, the UK is the same. We both know, like, the examples you gave of Travis and Jamie are people who are operating in, like, Bristol, London. So I suppose what I'm asking is... Um, Imagine Whitby is what we're asking you to think about. Isn't it? Yeah, I guess what I'm asking is the queer community is, you know, remoulding itself with a lot of confidence, like you talked about. But will we see more acceptance and understanding of it you know and i'm not suggesting that everyone in a small town has backward views of course not no, but no, yeah no, i'm no. interested whether you think especially applied to a place like australia whether we'll see proper integration of these ideas in the next couple of generations i certainly hope so i think there's no denying the internet mm, that is a true thing but also what comes with the internet is the opposite <laughs> of tolerance yeah mm. i mean it's a really tough question i just i truly and deeply hope so it is because i've asked you to forecast the entire direction of a country's behavior <laughs> yeah no, no and i'll get there and i'll do it correctly <laughs> and people will hold me to it yeah oh yeah we will come back to this in 20 years by the way we'll do a retrospective oh, that would be a great it's like seven up <laughs> there are shows like drag race though drag race yeah. in the uk has mm. made huge strides in the conversation about non-binary people and even just bringing queer people's stories to the forefront absolutely and i think drag race on under is doing a similar thing down there i'm assuming yes yeah i want to know whether it'll carry across to other parts of the country than our little bubbles i think there's an interesting thing that happens with there's a lot of talk with shows like drag race and you know even like queer eye and those types of things of sometimes the queer community as a whole kind of freak out when we're feel like we're being i guess homogenized is kind of Mm. the kind of the selling of the whereas my opinion is it's just creating understanding Mm. because we've had to fight for so long as a community for people to accept us and then they do 
but what comes with that is they also want to make money off us. Yeah. But that's kind of what happens. This is my point of view, at least. That happens with everything. And I would hope shows like Drag Race, you know, the fans of Drag Race and shows like Queer Eye as well, queer or not, they really hold on to it and they also hold it up to great standards that sometimes a light entertainment program cannot hold up to. <laughs> yeah. And so sometimes when it vaguely disappoints, people start to think, well, this is what happens when you start to try and sell a community this way. And you're like, uh, but it's more just like, this is what happens when you make a TV show. This is what happens when you make a TV show. And the fact that it's being made means that, you know, people are starting to understand the queer community, which means that they're starting to accept the queer community. Yeah. Like the fact that there's probably some 14 year old straight girls in regional towns saying, yes, queen. And maybe they don't know the etymology of that phrase. Watch Paris is Burning and you might have a better understanding, but they are aware of what a gay man is, mm. yeah. which I am not necessarily sure what a queer person was when I was their age. Yeah. So the balance is tipping towards knowledge and then knowledge should lead to understanding more often than not, you'd think. Yeah. Look, there's always going to be fuckheads. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we all <laughs> know that. <laughs> you can't do anything about the fuckhead quotient that exists. <laughs> no. But you can work around it. But I truly think, yeah, we are leaning towards a, you know, there was kind of conversations a little while ago in Melbourne where there was a gay bar that they only wanted to let gay people in. And it was just a little bit like, hmm. <laughs> well, gay bars used to be a place where we couldn't go anywhere else. So we would, and look, I also don't want to go to a hen's party when I just want to drink quietly with my friends. Yeah. And that is a weird thing where like gay bars become. A tourist attraction for people that aren't gay. A tourist attraction to come and look at a zoo. This was mentioned by another guest. Like it's still sitting in this realm of, you know, we used to have to have gay bars with blacked out windows because we were scared of being killed. And now the fact that people want to come and hang out in there to then be like, no, only gay people in here. It's like, well, how do you prove it for a start? Machine gun fellatio, that's how. Well, yeah. Yeah, but not everyone can do that on demand, we've heard. <laughs> yeah, it's just an interesting, and I don't know what my opinion about it is, but it's just like a strange... I think the more we strive towards acceptance and inclusion, we have to understand that that acceptance and inclusion has to reach outside our community as mm. well. And inclusion means including everybody. Mm -hmm. That includes straight people. <laughs> Otherwise, just basically swapping one form of prejudice for another, in a way. Well, yeah. that's kind of my view, yeah, overall. And we need to keep changing the bar. Yeah. When we get to a certain place of acceptance, well, let's move it forward a little bit more, mm. not just be like, well, it needs to be this, exactly this. It's not 1974 anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we're not after that specific thing anymore. Things have changed. So talking of changing the bar, mm. our final question is always how to create a person Ooh. and what three qualities you build into them. But I quite like that you said earlier, there's always going to be fuckheads. Let's call this section how not to be a fuckhead. <laughs> What three qualities could you build into someone to prevent them being a fuckhead? How would you program a non-fuckhead? Yeah. Yeah. So we're making a non-fuckhead bear. <laughs> if you can. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think of how to break it down because personally I think what everyone needs to have is a pretty, like, flexible rudder in their life. I will say that's the first time we've heard flexible rudder in this question. As a phrase, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> it sounds like a kind of mad libs. It sounds also impractical because surely you want a rudder to be fairly... It's not going to guide you very far if it bends. But you want to be able to change... Oh, right. A movable. A movable, yeah. Like, yeah, you don't want to... I don't mean bendy. <laughs> I think that's just a plastic bag. That's just going to slow you down. <laughs> but I think to be able to... Exactly what we were just talking about then. I'm a 30-year-old queer man. 
and there's so much stuff that I don't know and that I am already losing hold of an understanding of. And, you know, I meet kind of 21, 22-year-old comics is my example, but just people. (laughs) They're people first. (laughs) And they're already so aware of who they are. And I think that comes from a being ready to kind of take in new information <laughs> and not just be like, well, no, actually, I think you'll find, like, there's just a kind of like, oh, I've not heard that before. That's interesting. It's like happy to change course. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I think I still occasionally come from a place of like, well, from my experience, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I like that phrase. <laughs> but it doesn't always win hearts. You're right. <laughs> I also think, I don't know how this can be put into the person, but... To know when to ask for help, I think, is, like, really important in a person. Mm. I feel like it's a very misused opportunity. Like, as people generally, I feel like humans are very, uh, no, I can do it. (laughs) I would also connect that to that kind of toxic masculinity as well. For sure, men, traditional men are constantly encouraged to think that way whether they know it or not you know the cliche of men not taking directions and that kind of thing like Mm. and i feel like this has come up a few times but a self-assuredness which kind of all spawns back into that but i feel like i've heard in past episodes of this podcast people talk about we live in a wonderful world but it's pretty shitty i would say that's your stand-up in a sentence reese (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) the world is mystical but it's fucked (laughs) yeah and, you know, I was talking earlier about, like, changing my material up. I reckon that's throughout the time I've started to feel a little bit more, like, sure of myself. And I think that it took me, like, 25 years to do that. And mm. I think it does feed back into the other two as well because it takes a base level of confidence before you can be flexible in your opinions or vulnerable enough to ask yeah. for help. All this stuff comes from a secure mm. sense of who you are, right? Like, when I'm talking to someone and I realise I don't like them very much, which is... Pretty common. <laughs> it's happened in the last hour, in fact. Yeah, yeah. I will be asked to be mainly edited out of this. <laughs> it's usually because, you know, when you see someone having a conversation with someone across the room and you can just tell that they're just not taking in anything that the other person is saying mm. and they're just being really dismissive of them and stuff. And that is so unattractive to me on so many levels. Yeah. And I think that's what I mean by that kind of rudder thing of just being like, well, you're wrong. Mm. Yeah. That is deeply unattractive to me being confident enough to have your mind changed i suppose is what we're saying there yeah without feeling it undermines the person you are yeah so basically know yourself but be prepared to change your mind yeah and be ready to ask for help to get from a to b yeah Yeah. be in a coma i guess is what i'm saying (laughs) be sure of yourself but easily moved yeah that's good i think i don't think that's a contradiction but the missing ingredient is being able to allow people to help you, I reckon. I think those three fit together really nicely, to be honest. Yes. There'll still be original issue fuckheads, yeah. but there won't be any new ones manufactured. And eventually the fuckheads will die out and then we'll all be happy. And that is the aim of this podcast. There'll be no fuckhead mark two. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Reese, from all the way across the world, actually. Yeah, Thank you've you been absolutely great. I nearly closed by saying, oh, maybe I can have a wine now, but it still is only half past ten if you think about it. So maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Not even if you think about it. It's just, it's half past ten. If you agree with the standard time (laughs) that the world has adopted, yeah. You know, a very flexible rudder to argue with that. (laughs) Is there anything you'd like to plug, Reese? Oh, you know. People can find you on social media if they want to fire weird suggestions at you. Yeah, just at Reese Nicholson. I've got a special on Netflix if you'd like to watch that. Imagine if you watched my special and it was just all the same things I'd said here, like word for word. I just was clearly just cramming material. It's a very good special. I enjoyed it. Yes, Reese's stand-up is highly recommended. Oh, thank you. 
And I'm on Drag Race Down Under, which I think is on BBC Three over there. Yes, it is. Well, I hope the remaining how many days of quarantine go I've well? Got eight more. Eight more. We might have to have you on again in a few days' time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, imagine, and I just had completely different opinions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Reese. Thank you, Reese. Thank you so much, guys. And as promised, that was Reese. We're getting very good at um, introducing the guests that we actually have on. Well done us for the admin. We're almost 100%, yeah. If we, if we promise a guest in the intro, they nearly always do materialise. And there, there it was the case again. So that was Reese Nicholson. Enjoyed that. Talking of promising, you promised a bit of self-flattery and a bit of self-promotion. So do you want to do a bit of that now? Well, uh, yes, I don't see it so much as uh, self-flattery as just desperate neediness. I am uh, <laughs> now, for the foreseeable future, on an extremely long tour of the country doing my stand-up. So if you listen to this podcast sometimes and think, um, I, I, it'd be great if there was 90% less talk about masculinity. And 50% less Chakraverti. And a lot less Chakraverti, yeah. Then what are you left with? A stand-up tour by me, and um, <laughs> I, I suppose I don't know, Michael. I suppose if you put yourself into the into the shoes of a listener, they might be thinking, "Well, how can I find out the dates and the ticket links and so forth?" Do you think? Yes, if I was if I was a listener, I'd probably just Google the words "Mark Watson comedian tour" and hope for the best. Uh, and you've correctly anticipated what I was going to suggest, actually. Although the, we, I can't be more forensic <laughs> than that. If you go to uh, markwatsonthecomedian.com, you will see a complete list of the dates. The show is called "This Can't Be It," and it has been going well, actually. And I would love to see people who are podcast listeners I mean not just any podcast listener don't care about the rest of them but if, you, if you're a fan I mean one of our very valued listeners um, and you come to one of the tour shows I'm, I'm often around afterwards um, sometimes I'm signing books and stuff please do make yourself uh, known to me it would be lovely to actually meet some of the people that have supported this yeah and if you come to the one in Newcastle I'll be there too so it'll be a Brucey bonus um, which will be lovely um, talking of self-promotion that's a great idea actually that's the, start to promote the tour by promising you as well and then surely we can't miss anyone uh, talking of self-promotion if you like this podcast or any other podcasts that we've done uh, could you please give them a like and a download and a follow and a review and a star oh no five stars we've um, been lucky enough to have some quite a few new listeners over the past uh, couple of weeks so um, do go back and check earlier episodes if you'd like we've had some amazing conversations with people and as michael says please shower us in whatever sort of format of validation you feel able to uh, speaking of our uh, and i really mean this valued listeners we have been lucky enough to get two new patrons this week as well so hello and thank you to sarah lou and anna Yes, thank you to both of you. And if, you, if anyone else wants to join us, we're on patreon.com forward slash Mankind Podcast. And we're also on social media at Mankind Podcast. Nice and consistent for everyone there. Um, yeah, that's it from us, I think. Well, except to say who we've got next time, I suppose. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> which is actually meant to be the point of this outro, but we've just filled it with admin and uh, <laughs> instead. We have the wonderful Ben West, who is a brilliant mental health activist, handsome man. It's a really interesting, different episode, I think. We talk quite... Uh, in depth about mental health and masculinity and i think it's one of my favorites actually yes it's quite an un- sort of slightly unusual uh, episode this one um it's a, he's a name that won't be uh, familiar to a lot of listeners but you certainly will look him up afterwards and I, i'm really keen for people to hear this episode because it does have quite a specific focus which is not something we've talked about that much before no spoilers and which i think is really important for people to hear so yes as you wait for that one mark of busy tour in the country i've got a wedding cake to make for a drag queen and planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Um, we'll see you next Monday. Have a nice week. Bye. Bye.